Amen. Through the blood. Amen. That's good. Wow. Well, let's take our Bibles today. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. Again, we have our promotion, our, our, our youth rally coming up Saturday. We're excited about that. And that's always exciting. And we'll look forward to what the Lord's going to do in lives there. And then also tonight, I do want to let you know, I'm, I'm going to kind of start a, I don't know if it's a series or just a, kind of some messages that are a little bit more directed toward uh, family, um, you know, relationships, that kind of thing. And tonight I'm going to be sharing five ways that we are teaching and training our children to be entitled. I'm going to talk about that tonight, okay? And so I want to encourage you to come on back if you are a grandparent raising uh, some children or if you are a parent raising children or you just have some children you're in charge of. You might want to come and listen to some of these things that we do sometimes without even realizing it that are breeding a sense of entitlement. And we're seeing that attitude move into the church. And we don't want that to be, uh, it's not necessary anywhere, but we certainly don't want to see it permeate the church and ultimately affect the work of God. And so tonight we'll be talking about that. And uh, it's just, I think it'll be helpful to you. It's just common sense things that we do or allow or permit that seem to be encouraging and even perpetuating this mentality and idea of entitlement. All right, so this morning, Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 through 5. Chapter 21, we're going to read the first five verses, as we mentioned. I'm going to set the stage and try to help you see where this lies in history. And then I'm going to look at this. I, I I shared this at the nursing home the other day, and I thought this might be a good message for us. And so I've went ahead and, and, and maybe expounded it slightly, but we'll see. I, I don't usually preach for, you know, uh, an hour and a half to them like I will you this morning. And so, uh, <clears throat> okay, I won't do that to you either. But nonetheless, uh, it, it'll be a little longer. And uh, yet, on the other hand, uh, I think you'll find it to be a help. And I, I do find it to be encouraging. And so let's go ahead and read Revelation chapter 21 beginning in verse 1, reading through verse 5. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Let's go ahead and have a quick word of prayer. Father, we come to you. We're asking, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts through the word of God. May we be encouraged in a dismal day in which we live. We need your Holy Spirit and your word to encourage us. Father, we need you, Father, to help us see the hope and the, just the prospect of, Father, the future. To understand that as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are more than conquerors. God, help us today to be blessed, helped, encouraged, and inspired this morning from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we're in chapter 21 of Revelation, but as we begin, the cha- begin this book of Revelation, it starts rather differently. As a matter of fact, 
over here in chapters 2 and 3, we find that there's the church being uh, spoken of and shared with us. We see the seven churches. And those seven churches not only represent literal churches, but they also represent church history through the years. We can look at those seven and we can see how the church, the professing church, not necessarily the true church, but the professing church has moved through history. And so we see the church, the church age being spoken of, being addressed in chapters two and three of Revelation. Now, there comes a point in chapter four, right off the bat, that we see a man by the name of John, who ultimately is the writer of Revelation. He is not the author of it, but he is the one who penned it. And nonetheless, He then, in chapter 4, according to the word of God, is called up, called out. And there when he's called out, he is thrust into the future. And there he looks down, uh, he's uh, he's in the spirit on the Lord's day or the day of the Lord. Well, the day of the Lord, of course, it incorporates and includes the seven year tribulation period as well as the thousand year millennial reign. A day is as a thousand years to the Lord. So we have the day of the Lord there. So now... We have chapters 2 and 3 where we have the church age, and that's indeed the age in which we live, where salvation is by grace through faith. We're so blessed to live in this age, this time, this dispensation. And so at the end of chapter 3, now we come to chapter 4, and boom, immediately we see John, who is the apostle to the church, ripped up, taken out, and there he is placed in the Spirit. He's called out. Sounds a lot like a rapture, does it not? And so there he is now. He's raptured out, if you will, and he's looking down on the tribulation period and he's going to give us a bird's eye view and he's going to literally write what he sees. Some people say sometimes when they look at the book of Revelation, boy, it's kind of confusing. It's a little hard to understand. Well, can you imagine if you were John thrust into the future 2,000 years or more and you're looking down on the earth and the world as it is today. And I believe that John was literally cast into the future, seeing it as it happens. Now, again, you can debate that. We can argue that. But the reality is, is he's seeing it as it's transpiring and taking place. How would he describe cars? And how would he describe airplanes? And how would he describe certain things that are taking place? Can you imagine someone that's never seen those things now, putting them on paper, penning them under inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Boy, it could look very different to him. And so he's penning them, and we have to understand that. So we have here chapters 2 and 3, church age. We then have chapter 4, the rapture of the church. We see that through John, the apostle. We then have the seven-year tribulation that's taking place now. And on earth, of course, remaining are those that did not go with the Lord, that were not part of the body of Christ, that have not received and accepted Jesus Christ. They are remaining, they are left on the earth. And there we find... After that, we find that the rise of Antichrist takes place in chapter 6. We see him coming to power. Of course, we know he comes to power through flattery. He comes to power through diplomacy. He doesn't have to to fire a, a shot over the bow, so to speak, yet. But because of the covenant he makes with Israel early on in the tribulation period, because of the peace treaties that he signs, he has peace on the earth. He seems to be this great, wonderful leader. But that will all change in the middle of the tribulation period. And then we have what's called great tribulation. And that's a real mess, okay? So anyway, we have the tribulation period. So chapters 2 and 3, the church, church age. There it is. We have the rapture of the church, chapter 4, revelation. We then have the rise of Antichrist, chapter 6. In the tribulation period between chapter 5 and chapter 18, all the tribulation. 5 to 18, all tribulation. Then we arrive at chapter 19. Chapter 19, we see Jesus Christ coming back. He comes back, the Bible says, with his saints. He comes back with you and I who were raptured out in chapter 4. We're coming back with Jesus Christ in chapter 19 on white horses. Here we come. Woo! Ride him, cowboy. Here we are. Okay? Now, that's what we see taking place. Now, in the meantime, 
early on in chapter 19, we see something else that transpired and took place a little before the return of Christ, and that was the judgment seat of Christ. Because now those that are riding with him are in robes of white. They've been judged. They've been judged. And now here they are. Judge not for their sin, but judge for their works and what they had done as a result of their relationship with Jesus Christ. So here we are now. We have chapters 2 and 3, the church, where we are today, right now in history. We are going to have the rapture of the church here in the near future or sometime in the future. We don't really know exactly when that will be. We then have a seven-year tribulation period. At the end of seven years of tribulation, or should I say while the tribulation takes place, there's judgment seat of Christ in heaven. And at the end of that seven years, we then have Christ returning with his saints to establish his literal physical kingdom on earth, on the throne of David in Jerusalem. Then we have 1,000 years of a millennium. Millennium meaning 1,000. We have 1,000 years of ruling and reigning. Jesus Christ ruling with a rod of iron. Jesus Christ righting the wrongs. Jesus Christ making good on his promises and, and cleaning things up on earth. Hey, no leader in this world can clean up the world like it needs cleaned up. There's no way that a human being that is in sin, just like you and I are, can ultimately do what Jesus Christ claims he will accomplish and do during the millennium. He is the only one that can get the job done. That's why he's called the Prince of Peace. But by the way, the Prince of Peace isn't on earth. That's why you never find peace on earth right now. You'll never find it. I don't care how many peace treaties are signed. It doesn't matter how, how much money is spent to bring peace. It doesn't matter how many guns we take out of the hands of people. There will never be peace on earth while Jesus Christ is still on the throne in heaven. When Jesus Christ returns to earth, he will rule with a rod of iron and he will bring peace to the earth. Only he can do that. Only he can. I don't think we should stop trying. I think we need to have as much peace as possible. I personally am not a fan of war. But by the same token, I know, just like the Bible said, the poor will be with us always, I also know that there will be wars continually because there is pride, arrogance, and self. And that always breeds problems and conflict. And so Jesus comes back in chapter 19, the millennial reign for 1,000 years. He's put Satan away for 1,000 years. He's put him in that, that he's, he's chained him up. And now for a thousand years, Satan is locked up. And boy, it's a wonderful time. Jesus ruling and reigning. Then he loosed Satan at the end of the thousand years. He loosed him. He allows him to go out again. And guess what he does? Just like he always does. True to his character, he goes out to deceive the nations. And boy, he makes people believe a lie again. A lie about God and a lie about his goodness and a lie about so many other things. And before it's over with, there's a big battle again that takes place. And guess who comes out on top again? Jesus Christ. At the end of that great battle, we now have what's called the great white throne judgment. So let's review very quickly. Church age, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, rapture chapter 4, chapters 5 through 18, tribulation, judgment seat of Christ. Chapter 19, Jesus Christ returns. Battle of Armageddon, big battle right there too, by the way. Then a thousand-year millennium, because Satan is locked away. He's then loosed again at the end of a thousand years. He goes out and deceives the nations. The battle of Gog and Magog, big battle, boom, gone. Now, judgment seat, the, the, the great white throne judgment. Chapter 20. But also, 
well, excuse me, chapter 19. But what we also find now is that we come now to our chapter. To our chapter. We now arrive at our chapter. We've, what, ch- the, the Great White Throne Judgment, chapter 20. Now we arrive at our chapter, chapter 21. So that sets the stage now. So when you think about the book of Revelation, that's, that's the timeline. That's how it works. Church age, rapture. We're already in heaven, we're gone. The rest of the book of Revelation, 5 to 18, tribulation period. Chapter 19, we return with Christ. Chapter, uh, 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 the millennial reign takes place. And then we have the, um, the, the great white throne judgment. And then we have chapter 21. Now there we are. We've arrived at our passage now. Do you see how that all works? There it is. Now that we understand the timeline, now that we know where, where it sets in the book, what's going on here? Chapter 21 we come right to the beginning and he says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea, and I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. I want to tell you this. I just want to say this. When we get to that point, chapter 21, what a day that will be. It's going to be a big day. It's going to be a good day. It's going to be a good day. I mean, a wonderful day. What a day that will be. And you say, well, what makes that such a great day? Oh, I understand. A lot has transpired and taken place. I mean, you know, we we know that. We've just talked about it. We've seen it in the book of Revelation. But what's going to really make that such a wonderful day? Well, I believe in verses 3 through 5 of our passage, we have three reasons or three things that are going to make that such a wonderful day, such a big day, such an exciting day. And so this morning, I want to share those three things with you. So... What will make this such a wonderful day? Number one, we shall see his face. Look at in verse 3 what the Bible says. It says, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself, and God himself, (laughs) I like that, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Now, the fact is, is that today, you and I, we operate and we function by faith. In the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Turn there, would you please? Hebrews 11, verse 1. Notice what the Bible says about this issue of faith. In chapter 11, verse 1 of the book of Hebrews, you just go backwards a little bit in your Bible, it says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You know what faith is? It, it's, it's having evidence of things you can't see, in a sense. I mean, just to make it simple, we could get into this. Some have said that this isn't really a definition of faith and so forth. It just describes faith, and I understand all that, and I don't want to get into all of that. But the reality is, is that it seems pretty clear to me that to exercise faith is to somehow have a confidence in something you cannot see. I think that's pretty clear from the passage. And let me tell you this. One day, we'll no longer need any faith. Do you know that today, without faith, it is impossible to please God? The Bible says over in the book of of Hebrews 11 again, chapter 11, this time verse 6, it says, But without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. The Apostle Paul says in the book of 2 Corinthians 5.17, For we walk by faith, not 
by sight. What he's saying is we can't see Jesus Christ face to face. We can't see him as in person as I look at you today. We can't have that kind of, that kind of relationship. It's not going to be one-on-one. I literally see you. I feel you. I touch you. I'm there with you. That's not going to happen. We walk by faith, not by sight. And the truth is, is if we don't walk by faith, then we're not walking at all on the part of Jesus Christ. The fact is, is that without faith, it is impossible to please Him. You say, my faith is weak. You better have some faith or you're lost today and you're without Christ and you're headed to a devil's hell. You need faith in the Lord Jesus Christ or you'll never make heaven sure. You have to have faith. You cannot please Him in the least. And by the way, when we function and we work in anything and any power, any ability outside of faith itself, without that being the very foundation of our effort and our work, then we are not pleasing God with what we are doing, what we are saying, where we are going, and who we are with. It's impossible. It's impossible. Well, I'm trying to do some good things. Are you doing it by faith? Well, I I could do it without faith, really. I'm that good at it. Well, then you've not pleased God, by the way. The apostle says, we walk by faith. Why? Because we can't see him. But what a day that will be. What a day that will be out here. What a day that will be when we've already gone past this time in which we live now where it seems that evil seems to prevail, where it seems that good often gets squelched, where it seems that the best always gets pushed down and we just kind of mediocrity rules. Let me tell you something. We have a lot of time ahead yet before we get to that day. But what a day that will be. And that day, again, we'll no longer need faith. We'll be in His literal presence. Do you know, when we gather on Sunday mornings or we come together here at this church, we're supposed to be meeting with God. That's why we gather. It's really not supposed to be a social time. That's not the main reason for the church. I mean, I understand it is a part of the church. It's a a blessing that God allows us to enjoy fellowship one with another, and that is a part of it. But let me tell you, if we come only for fellowship with one another and we neglect the very Creator and we neglect the Savior that died for us on Calvary, then we have missed the point. And let me tell you something. When we gather here today to meet with Him, let me tell you what. There is a tremendous challenge that takes place every single time. You say, what is that? I'll tell you what it is. It's stripping away all the layers of filth and foolishness that have accumulated throughout the week in our lives in order that we can meet with a holy God. Do you realize that as long as we're holding, harboring sin in our heart, we cannot fellowship with God? Do you realize we may be walking through the doors to meet with God, but there's so much sin and we're overlaid with so much uh, of, of, of self and so much flesh that literally God begins to scratch the surface through the message of the Word of God, but He never gets to the real heart of the matter because there's too much junk in our lives and we really never really meet with Him. May I say today, you could be in church today and not meet with God, and so could I. We beg God and we say, God, walk these aisles. Oh, God, speak to hearts. Oh, God, do your work in lives today. But can I say this in reality? You really determine whether or not he does work in your life. It's up to you how you come to this place. Because how you arrive will determine how deep God can dig into your heart and how much change he can bring in your life. But we'll see him face to face in that day. We won't have to just beg that the Spirit of God walk up and down the aisles. We won't just have to hope that our heart is free from sin and we're open and available to God's leadership. We won't even need faith in that day. 
will be in a constant state of worship, a constant state of fellowship, literally Christ in the midst. What a wonderful day. What a day that will be. We have greeters here at the church, and we have those ushers and some others that will greet people, visitors and members alike, and they provide a hearty welcome, and they, they provide a, a personal contact by maybe shaking hands, and in some cases, some of them are, 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 are very encouraging through their hugs and so forth, and I don't encourage everyone to be hearty in hugs, but, but the fact is, is that, is that uh, some are, are quite good at it, that, and, and, and people understand that, and they can accept that, and they are appreciative of that. Can you imagine... Can you imagine literally being in the presence of God, being able to reach out and literally touch Him? Can you imagine being able to to look into His tender eyes and be able to rest in His mighty arms and literally be able to fall into the arms of Jesus Christ? Oh, I know that doesn't sound too manly. That doesn't sound too masculine. But let me tell you something, if you've ever gone through anything in this life, if you've ever endured any kind of heartache and hurt in your life, I promise you, there have been times you wish you could only fall into His arms. God, help us to realize what a day that will be. Oh, I know right now we're in the church age and I realize that there's still a rapture that's going to take place and a tribulation and ultimately a millennium. And I know that ultimately there's going to be a great white throne judgment and then a new heaven and new earth being created. But then, what a day that will be. Not only we shall see His face, but another thing that will make that such a wonderful day, there'll be no more tears. No more tears. Look at chapter 21, verse 4. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. There'll be no more tears. (laughs) What a day that'll be, eh? Well, what causes tears? Well, it seems that he lists quite a few things right here. Notice he's going to wipe away tears, but notice, and there shall be no more, what? Death, nor sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. I don't know about you, but those seem to be pretty big culprits of tears. You know, the book of Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death. James chapter 1 verse 15 says, Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth Death. Do you realize that ever since Adam willfully disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, that mankind has had to deal with death, that mankind has continued to deal then with sorrow, with crying, and with pain? May I say today that the culprit of each and every one of those deals is nothing less than sin. Sin's the culprit. It's not God's fault. It's not God's fault that we have tragedy. It's not God's fault that there's heartache. It's not God's fault that there are tears. It's not God's fault that there's death. It's a direct result of sin. You say, but God lets it happen. And if He was really God, then He should be big enough to stop it. Oh, what a day that will be. 
I'm glad you mentioned that, friend. Because let me tell you, for right now, God is not going to stop that. Because we brought that on ourselves in the Garden of Eden. And for uh, 2,000 years now, we've been warring and waging a battle with the God of this world, Satan. And we got big G God and little G God down here fighting amongst themselves. And there is a battle raging. Yes, there's going to be casualties and there will be fatalities. But the fact is, what a day that will be when no longer there will be a battle. There'll be no more tears. Be no more tears. Boy, if only Adam would have obeyed God. But then again, think how different things would be for us if we did. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more sin. And if there's no sin, there's no death. And death will no longer be part of life anymore. Do you know the reality is, is that each and every one of us grow one day closer to death every day we live. It is a reality. It, death is as much a part of life as living. You can't escape it unless you're around for chapter 4. <laughs> and we're gone. But what a day that will be. There'll be no more death. Be no more sorrow. No more crying. No more pain. No more tears. Don't you get tired of the tears sometimes? That doesn't bother you. Doesn't it bother you to, to feel that kind of hurt? What a day that will be. <laughs> First of all, What a day that will be because we shall see his face. What a day that will be because there will be no more tears. And finally, what a day that will be. All things will be new. All things will be new. Check out, look at verse 5, please. He says in chapter 21, verse 5, And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. I think when we see all things new, we have to jump back to verse 1 and 2 again when he says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Let me just list a couple of the new things. Number one, a new heaven, as he says right here. A new heaven. I mean, the, uh, you say, a new heaven? Yes, notice heaven. <laughs> That's exactly how he says it in chapter 1, verse 1 of Genesis. And he, created a new, and he created heaven and earth, not heavens. Now, we know there are three heavens now. There's our atmosphere, there's outer space, and then there's the place, abode of God. We understand that. We see that. We, we recognize that in the Word of God. But God never created it that way. Let me tell you something. He's going to go back and have a new heaven, new earth. This new heaven will no longer be marked by sin and by Satan. I could never hope to describe or illustrate this accurately, but I want you to think with me, if you would, about a very, very humid day. Hot and humid, sticky day. Think about that oppressive heat that you feel. Then comes a a cold front into the area. 
And that cold front brings this fleeting torrential downpour. It just shows up and is as raging and as quickly as it came, it departs. And when the sky clears and the sun returns, you step outside to a new day. Have you ever done that? I mean, it was hot. It was oppressive. It was heavy. Boy, that torrential downpour came. The clouds opened back up. The sun came out shining. And all of a sudden, all the humidity was gone. The air was cool and the air is light. It smells fresh and it smells clean. It's a new day. It's like a totally different day. And you go, wow, it's so nice out here. I believe that that new heaven or heavenlies will have been cleansed and purged of Satan and sin's effects. It'll be fresh and new. New heaven but also a new earth. Look, if you will, in Romans chapter 8, verse 22. Romans chapter 8, verse 22. Someone says, well, I'm a little bit perturbed and a little bit upset with Jesus. A little, little mad at God because, you know, He allowed a tornado to come through our neighborhood and it, it crunched my house and it wrecked my home. And I'm a little upset with Him over that tsunami over here. And I'm a little bit mad at God who allows these hurricanes to take place. And, oh God, and if God was a God like He's supposed to be, then He would be powerful enough to handle that. He's obviously not the God He claims to be or that you say He is. Well, here we go again. Romans 8.22 explains all this mess. For we know that the whole creation, the whole creation... The whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. I don't know about you gentlemen, but maybe you had the privilege and opportunity to see one of your children birthed. And maybe if you were unlucky enough to have a wife who was not on an epidural. There's a big difference, friend. With epidural, without epidural. With epidural? Without epidural. Ah! Ah! Get away from me. Don't touch me like that. With? Without. And let me tell you, especially when that baby's coming, watch out. Now listen. Not everybody responds quite the same, but you get the picture. Travail. Travail. There's pain involved here, suffering involved here. And let me tell you, the Bible says the earth, we know that the whole earth, a creation groaneth and, uh, and, and travaileth in pain together until now. It's as though the earth is in labor. It's as though you and I and our bodies, our flesh are in labor. The whole creation groaneth and travaileth. What do you, what do you think natural disasters are? You know what's the culprit of all that mess is? Sin. Sin brought that on. Do you really think in the Garden of Eden they had tornadoes? Tsunamis? Earthquakes? Of course not. But when sin entered the world, it affected the creation. It didn't just affect the heavens, but it affected the earth itself. And we're paying the price for sin today. But what a day that will be. (laughs) Did you get it? What a day that will be. 
Oh, I know we still have to endure it now. And I know we still have to deal with it now. But the fact is, is that we as believers, at least we have a great hope. We can look forward to that day. We can say, what a day that will be. Someone says, well, it ain't doing me no good now. I don't even think you're saved talking like that. I really don't. I, I got a question whether or not you even know the Lord. If you can honestly say that it ain't doing you no good now. Somebody say the Christian life isn't worth living. Are you kidding me? You that backslidden? Are you that backslidden? Give me a break. Oh, like that's better out there? That mess is better than what God gives us? You say you're upset about it? I'm, I'm angry about it. It bothers me to think that believers could somehow think that the world is better off than we are. Unbelievable. That would just shakes, that just totally, cons- I, I can't even wrap my mind around it. And maybe that's why the world doesn't see a need to be a part of this. Because we have that attitude. They're looking for something different and we keep showing them the same thing they have. We'll have an earth that's free from the effects of sin. No more earthquakes, tornadoes, tsunamis, any of that stuff. Gone. But then there'll be a new Jerusalem. Notice what it says. Revelation 21, 27. And there shall no wise enter into it. Talking about New Jerusalem. Notice what he says. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but that which is written in the Lamb's book of life. Do you see that? Are you get, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of getting this picture in my head. Do you know what really, and again, it wasn't in my notes, but I'm really starting to get this thing a little bit. I get the idea that it's going to be a wonderful day. You want to know why? No sin. Amen. That's kind of what I'm getting here. I'm feeling that a little bit. Now, I'm getting it because we're going through these passages and we're looking at that new heaven, fresh and clean, new. We're looking at that new earth, no more groaning and travailing anymore. Sin's been addressed. Satan, the god of this world, is locked away, gone. And then we got, we've got this new Jerusalem coming down. And, and nothing's going to be permitted in it that defileth. Nothing is going to be permitted in it that would somehow tarnish it. It seems to me that what, what a day that will be is kind of like saying, it's going to be great, no sin. I just thought of something. Could it be? that we're really not that anxious about that day because we like sin. I'm just wondering. I'm just spiffballing here. I'm just throwing it out for thought, but just maybe we're not real anxious about that day. We're not that excited about that day because we enjoy our sin now. Could that be? It's like my grandma used to say, guilty. I think sometimes I'm guilty of that. I think sometimes I lose perspective and sometimes I get kind of comfortable in the world in which I live and I find it to be rather appealing to me in some degree or another and I don't see myself longing for that day, looking forward to that day like I ought to. Maybe you've fallen into that trap from time to time too. Finally, last, but not the only thing that will be new, but let me I told you I'd just give you a few, but... How about this one? And I like this one. That new body. Boy, when I shared this at the nursing home, they got excited. One of them jumped out of their, their wheelchair and ran around the building and jumped back in. 
Not really, but anyway, I, I just, I mean, a new body. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. If they could have, some of them were trying to get up, man, they were fired up when they found out that, and some of them, a lot of them already knew that, but boy, they like to be reminded of that one. And I got a feeling some of you like being reminded of that, and P, I may be frank and honest with you, I certainly look forward to that one these days myself. Boy, when you was 20 years old, 25, 35 years old, it was easy to jump and run and play tackle football and do all that mess. But let me tell you something, when you hit 50 and maybe even 40 and 60 and 70 and 80, and it don't always feel as good as it used to. It gets a little more difficult. You still do a lot of those things, and you push yourself, and you don't quit, and you don't give up, but it's not as fun as it used to be at times. You pay a bigger price for it, that's all. Notice what it says in Philippians 3, Who shall change our vile body? that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. What a day that will be. Amen. I mean, we're going to have a new body. All things will be new, but our body will be new. The Bible tells us that we're going to have a Bible, uh, excuse me, a body fashioned like unto his glorious body. You know what it's saying? Remember when Jesus Christ died on Calvary and there he was buried? Three days and three nights later, he rose again, the Bible says. Boy, next thing we know, Jesus Christ shows up in the midst of the disciples. Next thing we know, Jesus Christ is having a little cookout there, over there by the Sea of Galilee. Man, he's feeding the disciples and he's having a good time fellowshipping with them. He's got a body that's adapted for the physical and a body that's adapted for the spiritual. He can go and function here on earth just like he was before his death, but then he can also fly faster than the speed of light and go from earth to the heavenlies into the presence literally of a holy God right there on the spot. And may I say, you have a body like His body. Amen. And that could be a wonderful thing. No more wheelchairs and no more canes and no more of these, these things that you can hear better called hearing aids and no longer will I need a pair of glasses to see distance and it's all going to be different because I have a new body. What a day that will be. What a day that will be. Boy, what a day that will be. We're going to see His face. Face to face with Him forever. No more tears. <laughs> what a day that will be. No more tears. No more hovering over a bed watching a loved one pass away. No more dealing with death and sorrow. No more having to face the hurt and heartache of separation and loss. What a day that will be. Finally, all things new. All things new. New heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, new body. I like that one. But it is all predicated. It's, it's all set up. It's all made possible with a decision. You have to make a decision. See, before that's such a wonderful day, you have to settle something today. You need to have a good day today. See, the fact is, is that the only people that are found 
here are the ones that made a decision for Christ here. That means you have to now decide whether or not you will trust in Jesus Christ. You have to decide today whether or not you will believe that He literally died on a cross, shed His precious blood, was buried and rose again to pay for your sin, not your buddy's sin, not just the sin of the world, although He did. He died for your sin. It is personal. It's got to be personal. It's not enough to say, well, He died for the sin of the world, so everybody's His child, everybody's going, and that's all that matters. God's not a kind of God that would send anybody to hell. You're right. He won't force you to go anywhere. You'll choose. And by not choosing Him, you're choosing not to have Him. And the only way that you get into heaven, the only way that you ultimately enjoy that day is if you've met Him in this day. I want to encourage you. If you've never recognized Christ as your only way, truth, and life, if you haven't understood that neither is there salvation any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, if you've never come to the place where you said, He is the resurrection and the life, then I want you to understand you have yet to have any reason to hope for that day. You, you, you won't be there. You have to settle your soul's salvation now. I want to encourage you to settle it today. Don't guess and don't hope and don't wonder. The Bible says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life. You can know it because He promises it and His word is true. You don't have to take my word for it. You don't have to take a church's word for it. You can take His word for it. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saved from their sin and saved from the consequences of it. Today you have an opportunity in this dispensation of grace, chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation, where the church is still being addressed and dealt with. You have an opportunity today to be forgiven of all your sin, past, present, and future sin, and be part of literally the family of God. And to have Christ living inside you, guiding and directing your every footstep. Won't you choose Him today? And when you choose Him, you won't be left on the earth for the tribulation. You'll be raptured out. While they're having judgment, you'll be being commended for the things that you've done on behalf of Jesus Christ. You'll return with Him in chapter 19 not to have one mark on your body from any battle because you will have a new body like His body. And you will enter the, tri- the, the millennium and rule and reign with Christ according to Revelation 1.5. And when the great white throne judgment takes place, you will not be judged for your sin because your sin was judged on a cross way back there. And when that new heaven, new earth, And when those things are all new, you'll be there. And what a day that will be. What a day that will be. Settle your salvation today. And then determine that you're going to be the best you can be for Jesus Christ if you already know him. In anticipation of that day. Father, we come to you.